Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This past week brought two major developments in the fight against COVID. First, Joe Biden was elected president, meaning we're going to have a new team in Washington and new leadership working on the issue. Second, Pfizer announced early results of its test of its vaccine in human subjects and suggested that some 90% of the people who took the vaccine were successfully protected against COVID. We'll be addressing both of these developments in episodes soon. Before we do that, however, today we wanted to reshare with you an interview with Dr. Vivek Morty. Dr. Morty is one of the people just named by Joe Biden to be one of the co-chairs of his anti-coronavirus task force. In the interview, which we recorded on September 30th, Dr. Morty also discusses the question of how we will get people to trust in a vaccine when and if the vaccine actually begins to work. In other words, what we have for you in this interview is one of the heads of Joe Biden's coronavirus task force laying out the policies that he will use when vaccines begin to work. It doesn't get more immediately relevant than that. For those of you who are regular listeners to the show and remember this interview clearly, don't worry, we have another new episode coming your way in the next couple of days. For those of you who haven't heard this interview before, we really hope that you find it as valuable as we did. Dr. Morty was Surgeon General of the United States under Barack Obama, and he is now co-chair of the Biden Coronavirus Task Force. Vivek, thank you very much for joining me. I want to start with a question that you've spent a huge amount of time focused on, and that's a question of trust. 
public trust in science, public trust in medicine. And what's particularly driving me to ask you this question is that as we move through phase three trials for potential vaccines with respect to COVID-19, there's a lot of uncertainty about how the public will react if and when there's an emergency use authorization for these vaccines, or if there's publicity around these vaccines that seems to be politically motivated. And that, of course, is a question that implicates science, it implicates medicine, it implicates approvals, and it implicates politics. So there's a lot to be said about this, but intervene in it wherever you would like to start. So this is a timely question, and I think the issue of trust is one that has been growing, frankly, during this pandemic response. Let me just say a word about why this is so important. It's not just about a vaccine. During pandemic responses, and I saw this when I served as Surgeon General during the Zika outbreak and during Ebola as well, public trust is one of the most important resources you have, and you have to cultivate it at all costs. That means being honest with people even when you've done something wrong. It means being open to hard questions, even when you don't know the answers to them. It means communicating openly, transparently, and regularly uh, with people. And in this moment, it also means allowing them to hear directly from the source of information, which are scientists. You know, science has to guide pandemic responses. And when scientists aren't allowed to speak directly in an unfettered way uh, with the public, it sows doubt. What's happening here with regarding a vaccine is that we have an unfortunate confluence of factors. We have, number one, trust, which has been, I think, badly injured, you know, over the last several months. Uh, you have a political cycle, which is coming to a culmination with this presidential election. And you have a pandemic that has not gotten better. In fact, we uh, have the most number of cases in the world. We have had nearly 200,000 people at this point when you and I are talking today uh, who've died from COVID-19 in the United States. And we do not see a sign of this ending because our response has been poor. And so all of these are coming together to make people nervous about a decision around a vaccine. And I think there's great danger to rushing a vaccine approval uh, or an emergency authorization in this environment. The damage is not just that people may not take the vaccine. Uh, in fact, right now, from a, a September Kaiser Family Foundation poll, we know that 54% of people are saying that they would not take the vaccine if it was offered today. That's a staggering number, just given the toll that COVID has taken, how much it's turned our lives upside down, how much people so desperately want this pandemic to be over, yet 54% of people are saying they wouldn't take a vaccine if it was approved before the election. So what does that tell us? That tells us that people are worried about the process. And they have good reason to be because we've seen a couple of processes in the FDA which have been driven by politics, the issue of an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine being one, the way in which the convalescent plasma emergency authorization was issued with false numbers uh, and hype that was political and not scientific. So if the administration really wants to ensure that people have faith in an emergency authorization, here's what they need to do. They need to, number one, make sure that they establish and communicate clearly an explicit standard for safety and efficacy that will be met before an emergency use authorization is approved. The second thing they have to do is they have to make sure that the FDA scientists, and very importantly, its external advisory board, which is known by the somewhat clunky acronym VERPAC, which stands for Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, both of these groups of scientists must be able, allowed to communicate 
directly with the public and share their assessment without a political filter. And finally, the data itself from the trial needs to be made available to the public so that the external scientific community can assess it, can come to their conclusions, and can share their opinions with the public. Only when these are done should a vaccine be considered for emergency authorization. Because again, the consequences is not just people won't take the COVID vaccine, but if we allow hesitancy and doubt to be sown about the process itself, then people will doubt vaccines even after COVID is over. They'll worry that politics and not science is driving the process, and that will ultimately hurt all of us. I have to say, when I heard those poll numbers about the number of people who wouldn't take a vaccine, at first I felt shocked, but then I realized that I myself had had a conversation, in fact, with my own parents, who are, you know, my father's 80, my mother's in her late 70s, and they had similar skepticism. And I was actually horrified in the conversation, and I took it upon myself to try to convince them that given their age and the bad outcomes that happen to people in that age group, if they do actually develop a case of of COVID, that they were getting it rationally wrong. They ought precisely to be prepared to to take a vaccine, again, provided some emergency use authorization. And and I think of my parents as super rational and cautious and sensible around medical issues. And that leads me to ask, even if the administration, the current administration, the Trump administration, did all three of the things that you just said, you know, if they actually specified clear protocols for what counted as safety, and then they let the scientists at the FDA and on the advisory committee, the vaccine advisory committee, speak directly to the public, and they publicized what data existed from phase three trials. And let's just imagine in this scenario that sometime between now and um, the time of the inauguration of the next president, that all of those things pointed in the direction of an emergency use authorization. Is there any credible way that we could get a lot of the public, even under those circumstances, to trust the vaccine? Or is the damage that's been done already so deep that we couldn't credibly imagine that, certainly in any Trump-authorized emergency use? Well, no, the damage that has been done is deep and it will take years to repair because people had a very high degree of confidence across the population in the CDC before COVID-19. And we've seen their credibility damaged. The FDA's credibility has taken a hit. Um, even people like Dr. Tony Fauci, you know, who are very highly regarded uh, by the scientific community and by the majority of the public, you know, even Dr. Fauci's credibility has taken a hit because of smear jobs and other uh, you know, criticism that he's received that has been politically directed. And so there's been a lot of hits to trusted sources, and it will take years for that to recover. Let's just say in your scenario that there is, in fact, good, worthy data that tells us that a vaccine candidate meets the standards for safety and efficacy and an emergency use authorization is issued. What would have to happen if you wanted people to actually be open to taking that vaccine is you would need, number one, members of the scientific community across the country and not just you know nationally known scientists, but deans of medical schools, doctors in local communities who are trusted and respected, nurses who are known and respected. You would need them speaking out in local communities to help people recognize that people I know, people I recognize, institutions that are local to me, trust this vaccine. The second thing that you would need to see is you would need to see community organizations get behind it. People would need to hear from uh, non-medical voices that they trust as well, whether that's the faith leader, you know, their community, their church leader, their synagogue leader. They would have to hear from friends and family who were getting the vaccine. They would have to hear that people are getting this and they're not having 
significant side effects. All of this mobilization, if you will, all of this messaging will take time and it would, will take, regardless of who wins the presidency, one of the most complicated and challenging vaccine rollout efforts that this country has ever seen. So that is why I often say that while developing a vaccine for COVID-19 is extremely challenging, actually rolling it out and administering it to people, getting that shot in the arm of a sufficient number of people that we can achieve herd immunity, that will be just as, if not more challenging. You've been advising Joe Biden on COVID-related issues. And that means that if Joe Biden were to be elected president and to take office in January, you're one of the very small number of people who will be in line for the single hardest, most thankless job imaginable in the Biden administration. And that would be spearheading the actual operation of doing exactly what you just said, of actually getting the vaccine to people. So let me start by asking you about what plans you have been developing, you and the Biden campaign have been developing for how to begin that process should he be elected and should a vaccine become uh, safe and available? Well, no, the vice president has been really focused on developing and thinking about plans. He never takes for granted that he is going to win the election, but he wants to be prepared to act on day one if he does. And what that has meant is not just going about the usual process that you have on transition teams, where you think about the structure of a department and you think about personnel, but it's involved thinking about some very specific areas that are going to require a whole lot more planning. So for example, how do you actually expand testing sufficiently so that we have enough testing so that everyone who needs a test can get one? How do we ensure that we actually have enough contact tracing capacity in our country? We don't right now, but we really need that. We have any hopes of getting uh, this under control. And of course, it involves how to think about the deployment of a vaccine. So these have been the topic of countless discussions that I and others have had with Vice President Biden, where he asked very specific questions. He's thinking about very specific plans. But a key parts of these plans, certainly uh, for the vaccine distribution plan, include thinking about you know who the trusted partners are that we will need in communities. Like, for example, if you think about the partners, it's not just the medical establishment, but it's also schools and employers. We know that schools and workplaces are sites where a vaccine could be administered. And having partners in those spheres is going to be absolutely essential. We know that local government and states are going to be extremely important partners. But here's the way I think the vice president would approach that partnership differently. In the early part of this COVID response, what we saw is a transfer of responsibility from the federal government to the states saying, you take care of this and we will you know, lead from behind, lead from a different place, we will step back. I think the vice president realizes that you need to give states the ability to craft their own response, but you also have to lead as a federal government. And one of the places in which you have to lead is in the allocation of resources. So just think about the following question. How do you decide how much vaccine goes to Georgia or Florida or Massachusetts or California? You can't have that driven by politics. That has to be driven by science and by need. So which raises a second issue that he's been working on, not just partnerships, but thinking about data systems, right? For understanding um, where the need is and making sure that we can meet that need. Right now, I'm worried that we don't have strong, robust data systems that are integrated in our country, such that if we administered and rolled out a vaccine today, we would automatically know where it was being delivered, who was getting them so that we could target our follow-up activities appropriately. 
we have to fix those data systems. So he's been thinking about a number of areas like this and bringing experts together, well beyond myself, you know, experts from really around the country who have done this before. Uh, he wants to assemble the best team possible because he knows this is going to be a once-in-a-generation challenge. Let me press you on this. I think you're right, from what I know, that the data systems that we presently have aren't sufficiently robust to even have a clear sense of what prevalence looks like. And that's before you get to the substantive question, which is if you knew prevalence, where should you focus resources? Because it's not immediately obvious that you want to focus a vaccine immediately on the hardest hit areas. There are actually arguments for beginning in more moderately hit areas and so forth and so on. So, I mean, this is a complex topic in its own right. But given that the data systems almost certainly are not in place, how is it realistic to think that a Biden administration could take the time to build up these data systems in order to then make an informed decision. I mean, if you are doing this, you and a team of people are doing this, you are going to be doing it in medias race. You are going to be inheriting the mess that you have inherited, and you will be under enormous pressure to act quickly, again, assuming that there is a safe and available vaccine. So I guess I want to say that sounds nice in the abstract, like let's solve the data systems, but there's no way that there's going to be the time that it would take to do that. So how do you make decisions under radical uncertainty without the data systems? So it's a great question. And and you're right. We can't wait until the perfect systems are built. You can't wait until all the partners are assembled around the table either. Because if this vaccine truly is safe and effective, that means that every day you lose are lives that are potentially lost. So what we would have to do is we'd have to we'd have to do the best we can in the beginning, use the data we have and go to areas that we know have great need and start deploying the vaccine through existing partners. We also have, thankfully, through the National Academies of Medicine, recommendations on what the priority population should be that we should target. So we know that healthcare workers and other workers in the front line are critical. We know the people at higher risk because of their age or other medical conditions they have are at higher risk. So we can go to nursing homes. We can go to other locations where high-risk populations are and preferentially vaccinate there. There is a lot of low-hanging fruit, if you will, in terms of actions that can be taken um, in the very beginning, even while you're trying to build up systems and build up partners. But all of this is going to be infinitely harder if people are skeptical, if they're doubtful, if they don't trust uh, what you're doing. And that's why the other plank of this that's so essential that we've been talking about is the importance of communicating openly and honestly about what our plans are and what progress we're making from day one. This is a kind of crisis communication that has been deployed by Republican and Democratic administrations alike, you know, in prior pandemics. It's not the the purview of one party, but it hasn't been done well in this response. And that's why we have a lot of ground to make up. We'll be back in a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. 
Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm deeply worried that regardless of the outcome of the election, if a vaccine becomes available and safe under a Republican administration, a lot of Democrats won't trust it. And that if a vaccine becomes available and safe under a Democratic administration, a lot of Republicans won't trust it. In other words, my worry is that the profound political partisan differences that we have are fully bleeding into people's trust in scientific institutions and medical institutions. What's our long-run societal solution 
to that problem. I mean, I, I'm not asking you to solve the problem of partisan division. Nobody can do that. And it's been with us in certain respects, although, you know, waning and waxing throughout our history. I'm talking about the very concrete problem, much closer to your area of expertise, which is that people's trust in science and medicine is coming to be deeply inflected by their partisan views. How do we break that linkage, no matter who's president? Yeah. And you have reason to be concerned because we've seen that on a number of measures, whether it's people's views of the masks and whether they're appropriate or not and useful or people's view of other precautions related to COVID, there hasn't been a partisan divide here. But what's interesting as a side note is if you look at this data on vaccines and specifically the COVID-19 vaccine, I mentioned that 54% of people are saying they would not take the vaccine if it was available before election day. That actually includes 48% of Democrats, but 60% of Republicans. So in a very interesting way, we're finding that both Democrats and Republicans have deep worries about the vaccine. But the larger point around polarization and you know affecting how we take in information and what we trust is absolutely true. And it will be deadly as it has been to date with regards to coronavirus. I think one critical strategy, and there are many here, but the one I'll mention is that we have to go local in terms of mobilizing information sources. Typically people think, well, if you get somebody on a major network in terms of news or a national radio station, that's how you get the message out. But I think increasingly in this polarized world where people are listening to their own sources, you actually have to go much more local. You have to think, how do I ensure that an individual's doctor actually knows the truth about this vaccine so they can recommend them? How do I ensure that that other people who are trusted members of a community like faith leaders know the truth about this vaccine so they can advise people. Because when you have doubts about whether people are telling you the truth, all of us as human beings go to the people we know and that we have trusted for a long time, that our friends, our family, our nurses and doctors, our faith leaders, and other trusted populations like this. So I think if ultimately we want to convince people that the vaccine is safe and effective, if indeed the evidence backs that up, We've got to think about how to mobilize those voices. And I think those will end up being much, much more important than getting people, you know, on cable news and on national radio. That raises the really hard question of how do you reach the local leaders that you're talking about? We live in an era where local newspapers, which at one time would have been a standard way to reach people locally, because you could have a local newspaper article about the local physician or faith leader who says, you know, the vaccine is great, but they're in retreat or in many parts of the country, they're already gone. And one of the ways that people now increasingly communicate with their trusted sources, whether it's family or friends or local leaders, is actually through social media. And in that environment, authority isn't quite as powerful as it once was in historical terms, and things can go the other way relatively quickly. There can be a, a, you know, a decentralized distribution of distrustful information. I, I agree with you that we want to get people to hear an important and true message from people whom they trust. But how do you, at a national level, think about reaching those people if it's not through going on CNN and MSNBC, which you do so frequently and so skillfully? Well, no, I, I think you, this is not easy work. It's a hard grind, if you will, because it requires a lot of conversations. This is, I think, why people have gravitated so much toward national news and national media. It has the illusion of seeming to be more efficient, right? You reach more people. Hey, why, why wouldn't that be better? The problem is it, it comes with a heavy filter that people don't necessarily trust. And so the way that I, I would think about this is that we would need to reach out, for example, 
to local organizations that bring together faith leaders. We need to reach out to the YMCAs, to the Rotary Clubs. We'll need to reach out to associations of librarians. We'll need to reach out to groups where we can get in front of people, talk to them, and then start engaging their local chapters. And if that sounds like really tough, tedious, tenuous work, it is. It's not easy to do because what we're really talking about, Noah, even though we haven't used this word before, is we're talking about relationship building, right? And relationship building can take time. But I think that it doesn't mean that we'll never be able to get a vaccine out for months and months. I think that there are enough people who believe that this is an urgent crisis and who under, will understand the science behind it, that we will have some uptake of the vaccine. The question is how to sustain that and get to a sufficient level where we have herd immunity. There's one other point I want to raise here, though. If this is indeed about relationships and if what we need are organizations that have a lot of relationships in the local level, it's been particularly worrisome to me over the last many years that we've had a breakdown in those kind of community organizations over the last many decades, like in this country, you know, something that's been well uh, documented by, you know, Bob Putnam, you know, up at Harvard and by others. But this decline in participation in community organizations and affiliation with community groups leaves people with fewer sources that they actually trust that are easy to access in a crisis like this. And I see that as, as deeply worrisome. It's one of the reasons why uh, when I left my time in government, when I was thinking about what do I work on? What do I want to contribute to in the world? It's why I kept coming back to this idea of social connection as being such an important topic. Because if you don't have strong connections in your life, then you don't have people you trust. If you don't have people you trust, then you're reliant on social media, on cable news, on other sources for your information. And you don't have people to talk through doubts and worries with. And I think we are bearing the consequences of a deterioration uh, in social connection, in social organizations. But that said, we still have many organizations in our communities that we can lean on. And that's going to have to be our priority in a new administration. Let me ask you about how deeply penetrated a vaccine would actually have to be to achieve herd immunity. I mean, I realize there's not an exact number that one can define with respect to a particular pandemic, although there is some general guidance that we have from epidemiologists. And the reason I want to ask you about that is what's sort of emerging in my mind as I listen to you is that a lot of us have been thinking, well, how do we get out of this? Well, maybe the right way to get out of it is with a vaccine. But what I'm hearing from you is that actually getting a vaccine is not necessarily the way out. The way out is to have a vaccine and then to have that vaccine be sufficiently trusted by a broad enough swath of the population that when it is distributed and taken, it gets sufficient penetration to actually reach herd immunity. And that may be a very, very different thing. I'm letting that sort of seep through my thinking right now. So let's just walk through it. Start with what percentage do you think roughly we would need to reach for the vaccine to be efficacious? So Noah, that number depends on how effective the vaccine is. Yeah. So if we had a vaccine that was 100% effective, which would be exceedingly unusual, then we would have to vaccinate somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of the population, maybe a little bit less because uh, you know, a number of people have had the virus already, they may have some short-term immunity, but it would have to be around 70%. But if you start dropping that, if you get to a, a vaccine that's around 50% effective, which is a threshold, in fact, that the FDA set in its June 30th guidance, then even if you vaccinated everybody in the country, you're not necessarily gonna get to herd immunity levels. Now, that doesn't mean that it's still not worthwhile. See, herd immunity is not a, a switch that we flip on or off. There are benefits to be gained. You know, if we get halfway there, there are benefits to be gained. If we get three quarters of the way there, 
But what this means, given the fact that getting to herd immunity levels will take time and will be difficult, is it means that many of the precautions that we're taking right now in terms of distancing and wearing masks and really upping our game in terms of personal hygiene and washing our hands, that those behavior changes will be with us for a while, certainly through 2021 and very likely beyond that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have to stay in our homes for years and years. We will learn, as we have already in the last six months, safer ways to come together in smaller groups, you know, outside or to even, you know, improve our current, you know, ventilation systems and other measures indoors to make uh, the risk of uh, getting coronavirus lower. So we will find safer ways to re-engage in our life, but our life is not going to go back to pre-pandemic sort of ways until probably at least several years from now. I just want to make sure that everybody who's listening gets the full weight of what you're saying. First, even a perfectly effective vaccine, perfectly efficacious vaccine, which basically doesn't exist in the real world for almost anything that we think of being vaccinated for, would have to reach 70% of the population before we can say we're at herd immunity and we can remove various forms of social distancing and masks and separation. As you go down the efficacy numbers, you get greater and greater probability that a good number of people will still be getting the virus. And as you go down, you need more and more people to be vaccinated. And of course, that's going to be actually inversely correlated in the real world, right? If we heard that the vaccine was 100% efficacious, more people would be inclined to take it. And ironically, what we need is the other way around. The less efficacious vaccine needs more people to take it. But if people say, oh, it's only 50% effective, a lot of people will mistakenly say, and therefore I shouldn't take it. I mean, mistakenly in the rational sense that rationally, you really should take it if it has any capacity to help you provide it that you don't think the danger is so great. So we could very easily get an extremely messy situation with like a 90% efficacious vaccine, but lots of people not taking it. And then the upshot of that I'm hearing you saying is that masks are going to continue even after the vaccine is out there. Social distancing measures, including not getting together with, you know, medium groups of people or large groups of people indoors, those restrictions are going to continue for at least 2021 and maybe for several years longer. And that is, in a certain sense, a much more depressing picture than a lot of us have been imagining as progress towards the vaccine seems to be advancing. I mean, am I getting it right? I mean, you're saying it very cautiously and very rationally. But what I'm hearing is actually a pretty striking rational conclusion that we're very, very, very far from anything approaching normal life. So yes, no. I mean, you know, I I try never to be alarmist about these things because there's, you got to admit, there's a lot we don't know. And I'm always optimistic, hoping for major breakthroughs. But I think the realistic picture is that we are looking at our life continuing to be changed for several years now. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. That does not mean that we're going to be in the exact state that we're in right now in a year. In fact, I think that we will be more able to get our children back to school, that we will find safer ways to do that. In fact, we know safer ways. We're just not really implementing them right now. I do think that we'll see more workplaces actually up and running again, because again, we will hopefully if we have advances in testing and if we have people more observant of precautions and we get local prevalence of the virus down, we can have workplaces operating, you know, at least in a partial way or even close to normal in in ways that we haven't in these last several months. So I think we will make progress. And even with getting together socially, I think we will find ways to get together in small groups indoors 
and socialize and see each other, but we'll do it in ways that are safer, just like how you see some schools actually able to bring children together uh, with masks, with distancing in indoor environments to learn. So we are an incredibly adaptable species. We've adapted a lot in the last six months. We will adapt a lot more. But what I, I do think we should be realistic about is that when a vaccine arrives, it's not like tomorrow or even in a month or in six months that suddenly we'll go back to having full arenas at basketball games and having crowded concerts and having you know large groups get together for birthday parties and other festive occasions. That will come back eventually, but it's going to take some time. The public pressure, though, the moment a vaccine is broadly available, a safe vaccine is broadly available, to go back to normal at the basketball arena is going to be overwhelming. I mean, I wonder how any president, even a president informed by science and advised by the best advisors, will be able to resist the kind of pressure that's going to be associated with that. You know, I think it is going to be increasingly difficult, but here's what I, I'll use this analogy. Like when you sprain your ankle, if you choose to rest for a requisite period of time and then actually get your physical therapy, you will recover a lot faster than if you just continue to walk on it and never do any PT. If you think about our COVID response, we've been doing more the latter than the former. And I, I attribute a lot of this to leadership. Like what we told people, our political leadership was that you got to shut down for some period of time. And then we opened up quickly, right? Before levels of the virus were truly low in communities. And we were reluctant to put in place mask mandates in many communities around the country. We were reluctant to push for uh, bars and other higher risk indoor spaces to actually close down. And so what you saw was this stuttering response and a level of infection that never truly got low. Like almost every other country, every other developed country was able to go up and come down to a low level. And now they're trying to keep that level low. We actually never got to a low level. We're still smoldering at a very, very high rate of daily cases. And the thing is, the public only has limited patience. And that's a risk of taking as long as we have to get it right. So the new president will have, yes, a Herculean task. You know, I thought that President Obama and Vice President Biden had a massive task in front of them in 2009 when they began the presidency at the time of the, the Great Recession. But I think the difficulty of this health, economic, and really crisis of public confidence, I think will dwarf anything we've seen in a few generations. I want to thank you, Vivek, for joining me. And I, for one, hope that you're a participant in the process of rebuilding trust in institutions and in directing us to a a rational and calm and efficacious way of addressing these problems. I appreciate those kind words. I, I do want to say that as much as what we've talked about today is perhaps sobering and not, you know, the message I think all of us would want in terms of feeling like this thing is going to go away tomorrow. I actually do feel optimistic overall about the future. And the reason I feel optimistic is, you know, I have been blessed in the work that I've been doing over the last six months to see the deep well of scientific and medical talent that we have in our country. And frankly, with collaborators around the world, so many of these extraordinary individuals are standing at the ready. They want to help. They want to do their part to address COVID-19. And we just need to bring them off the sidelines. The takeaways from listening to Dr. Vivek Murthy are pretty significant. Since the time of our interview, Dr. Murthy was actually named by Joe Biden to be co-chair of his coronavirus task force. He will therefore be at the center of the new leadership 
that the Biden administration intends to take on regarding coronavirus. And as Dr. Morty noted in the interview, as vaccines emerge and as they become more effective, a crucial goal will be spreading them fairly and broadly and getting people to trust the system in order to take them. Those distribution challenges about which Dr. Morty spoke are going to be very, very significant. The vaccines about which we have early numbers require refrigeration at an extraordinarily cold temperature. They are possible to manufacture at scale, but distribution at scale is going to be challenging. That means that along the way, we will have a significant period of time where we have something much less than universal access to the vaccine. On top of that, there is the question of whether the public will choose to take the vaccine, a further issue that Dr. Morty addressed, and one which he suggested can only be solved by slow, patient advocacy, clarity, and transparency. I would like nothing better than to be even more optimistic than Dr. Morty was in his interview about how quickly things can get back to normal, especially if lots and lots and lots of people get access to the vaccines and the vaccines work and people actually take the vaccines. The reality may be substantially more complicated as this conversation with Dr. Morty suggests. In any case, we thought it would be valuable to share this interview with you again in light of its increased salience for our national conversation. We'll be back to you soon with a new episode. Until then, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.